Good to see you today. Um, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Psalm 23. Uh, if you have a device with a Bible on it, go ahead and turn to the 23rd Psalm. How do you know? How do you know if you're a workaholic? How do you know if you're a workaholic? You know you're a workaholic if all your Christmas presents come from coworkers, right? How, how do you know if you're a workaholic? You, you know you're a workaholic if you head out to back to school night and you don't know which school your kids attend. That's how you know you are a workaholic. H- how do you know you're a workaholic? You check, you're checking your email in the shower. That's how you know you're a workaholic. And then how do you know you're a workaholic? Uh, your family refers to you as occupants. Um, obviously in America, we are, we are a society of workaholics. So- sociologists say that America is a nation of workaholics. And, and there was a time in the United States when, you know, we just really believed that if you worked hard, you'd be a success. And I think things have really changed because now uh, we really believe if, if, you know, if you don't work all the time, then you'll fail. And, uh, and so there's this thought just over the last, you know, 25 to 50 years that the pace in our culture has really, has really accelerated. And so what, the, what our society tells us is if, if you work hard enough, if you work long enough, you can achieve the good life. You can, you can have it all. You can have the good life. And uh, it's okay to sacrifice your marriage. It's okay to sacrifice your health. It's okay to sacrifice your relationship with God. Uh, because after all, the good life is, is good, you know, and you need to go after it. And the thing that I would say is that that's not the good life at all. That's the lonely life. I w- I, I, that's what I would say. I would say that's the stressed out life. That's the life of regret. And so we are, we are in Psalm 23 today. And the reason why I wanted us to take some time and, and, and really just kind of focus on Psalm 23 is because it's all about the goodness of God. And uh, it, is, it really paints the picture. I think one of the reasons why the 23rd Psalm is so well known is because what it does is it gives us a portrait of the goodness of God. And, um, and so that's what we're really kind of looking at in this series. That's, that's the real good life that God has for us. Now, if you were not here last Sunday, uh, we looked at the very first verse where David, as the psalm writer, says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he's saying, you know, uh, I have everything that I need. I'm content. And we talked about contentment. And the reason why he's content is because the Lord is his shepherd. He looks to the Lord as his shepherd. And we talked about what that means. We talked about practically, you know, making Jesus the shepherd of your life, right? We talked about, you know, asking him every single day when you get up, Jesus, will you be my shepherd? And we talked about how that involves really leaving behind other shepherds that we look to to kind of give us life that really don't. And then we talked about feeding off the food that the shepherd provides. Now, what I want to talk about today is really verse 2. I want us to focus on verse 2 because the picture that the psalmist gives us in in verse 2 is that he, as a shepherd, he leads us to rest and relaxation. All right? And, And that's what we're going to see. So I'm going to invite you, if you are willing and able, let's stand together as we read the entire psalm together, the word of God. So Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. 
your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the reading of the word of God. You may be seated. So obviously in verse 2, he, he's talking about rest, right? He talks about, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, he leads me beside still waters. Uh, he, he restores my soul. So it's this picture of rest and relaxation. You know, I was doing a little bit of reading, and I've shared this with you before, but it's just interesting. You know, on average, the average American today sleeps about two hours less than the average American 50 years ago. That's just how much the pace has accelerated in our culture. And so there are a lot of people that struggle with slowing down. There are a lot of people that, um, that slow down with, you know, that, that struggle with just resting and relaxing. And just, you know, just being honest with you, I'm one of those people. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, one of the most, you know, difficult things as a pastor is, is just resting and relaxing. I heard about uh, this one pastor had a church member go up to him and uh, the church member said, now, pastor, I, I tried to call you all day on Friday and you never did answer. And the pastor said, well, um, you know, Friday's my day off. And she looked at him and said, well, you know, the devil never takes a day off. And uh, the pastor looked back at her and said, lady, if I don't take a day off, I'm going to be just like the devil, you know. Um, but it really is. One of the most difficult things about being in ministry is it's 24-7. I mean, it never ends. It's not defined by 9 to 5. And, um, you know, it's just interesting because, you, you know, uh, when you're in ministry, you, you're tempted to feel guilty uh, when you're working and you're not at home with your family. And then when you're home with your family, you're tempted to feel guilty because you're not working. And so it's always this, this kind of double-edged sword that, that you work with. And so, um, so it's a struggle for me to, to, to rest and relax. And so uh, it's just interesting. I was preaching this topic today. And this past week, our, our staff had a staff retreat. And what we do is uh, once a year, we take two to three days as a staff team. And we go away and, and uh, we call it play and pray. Because um, what we do is we do a number of things on a play and pray staff retreat. We eat. Uh, we pray, we play, and then we eat again. That's what we do on staff retreat. It's it's kind of a low agenda. We we don't we don't do a lot. We just kind of we just kind of retreat and hang out together. And you know our staff is hilarious. They just make me laugh. They really do. So when I get around them, uh, they start making me laugh. And and uh, and that's exactly what they did this week. And I was just praising God uh, when I was uh, when the retreat was over and I was heading home. I was just thanking God because I really needed that. Uh, this week. And so life just gets at such a high RPM um, that you just need that time away, that time to, to you know, to kind of rest and relax. And the, the interesting thing about it was, as I was reflecting on it, I really didn't think I needed that before I went on the retreat. Or I really didn't think, I didn't see, you know, just how much I needed to take some time to rest and relax which really kind of spoke volumes to me because it shows me how blind I am to my own need for that and how a lot of times I won't rest and relax because I don't think I need to rest and relax when in, when in reality I really, really do. And so I think the question for us today as we look at Psalm 23, as we kind of talk about, you know, what it is to lie down in green pastures and 
you know, rest beside still waters? I think the question is, what happens when we live a life of hurry, worry, and scurry? What happens when that characterizes our life? What happens when you and I just push through and we don't really take time, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever, to, to really rest and relax? And the thing that I would tell you that happens is we really begin to forget the goodness of God. That's the thing. I mean, not only do we wear ourselves out, but we, come, we become blind to God's goodness and God's generosity in our life because we're so focused on the next thing. We're so stressed about the next thing. And so we forget God's love. We forget his grace. You know, we forget his generosity to us. We forget where he's taking us. We forget all of those things. And the forgetting of that causes so many problems in our life, in our relationships, and our relationship with God mainly. And so that's, that's at the heart of what I believe David is, is really trying to talk about in Psalm 23. And so this is what I want to try to do this morning. Just, just kind of briefly this morning, I want to talk about, I just want to share with you why I think we're restless. Because as Americans, we really are restless. Uh, we are, we have a, there's a workaholic spirit in our culture and, and we bleed into that in some ways. And, um, and so why are we so restless? I think we need to think about that. I, I also want to try to answer the question today, you know, why can we rest in Jesus Christ? And then I want to talk a little bit about how we can rest. All right, so, so let's look at this first one. Why are we so restless? You know, as I was thinking about this, you know, under every sin, and, and you've heard me talk about this before, but, but under every sin, every single sin that we commit and we struggle with, there's a lie underneath it. And, and you know, we, we buy into some kind of deception and then, and then we sin. And it's true of every single sin. And so that's why Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because when you, when you live by the truth, then at the core you know, there's, there's something right, right? There's something true there. And so when you give yourselves to what is true, then you're, you're not as, you know, you're not as pinned down by sin in your life. And so that's why David said, I desire truth in my inmost parts. I don't want to live a life of deception because it just leads me into, you know, basically, you know, the pit. And so I think that there are three deceptions that we typically buy into that lead us to restlessness. And the first deception is this, I have to prove myself. That's the first lie that we believe. I have to prove myself. I have to demonstrate my worth and my significance. And I have to show the world that. And I think that's one thing that wears us out. Because we're really just glory seekers we're really trying to demonstrate to all of our sphere of relationships that we are strong, we're significant, and we're worthy. Because we buy into the deception that, you know, my net worth equals my self-worth or my, you know, my work is equal to my worth. You know, and we think that if we can just work hard enough and achieve, then we'll be significant and the whole world will know that we're significant and that we're worthwhile. And I think that's, that's at the heart of what's happening. Now, church, listen to me. There's nothing wrong with hard work. God ordained us to work. He is honored by hard work. He is honored by excellent work. I think, the, I think it becomes an issue when we start grounding our identity in what we do. When our identity is sourced in our, in our, in our work, 
What happens when you don't have that work anymore? Your life crumbles, doesn't it? Why? Because, because my identity and value as a person revolves around my work and what I do. And so I think we've all, you know, we've all known people who've walked away from a good marriage. You know, we've we all known people who've walked away from good parenting. We've, we've all known people who've walked away from a good friendship. Why? Because they're pursuing a career path. You know, and they torch their relationships, the most significant relationships in their life, for the sake of achieving, for the sake of being something in their own minds or in somebody else's mind. And so what they're trying to do is establish their worth. And it's just a lie. It's a lie. You know, it's interesting as a pastor, you know, and I've shared this with you before, you know, I, there are times as a pastor when you're, you know, you have uh, the opportunity to be around someone's deathbed. They're getting ready to, to step into eternity and die. And it's just interesting because there's never been one single occurrence where I've been in that situation where they said, you know what, if you could just bring me all of my certificates of achievement, that would really bring me comfort at this point. You know, if you could bring me all the awards that I've won at work and all of my promotions and, you know, all of my trophies and all of my degree, you know, if you could just bring all of that and just set them around me while I'm getting ready to step into eternity, that'd be good. I've never seen one person say that. What is it that you want around you when, you get, when you're getting ready to step into eternity? You want the people in your life, right? Your family and friends, right? And I think what that does is it just brings great clarity for how we should be living when we're not on our deathbed, right? It shows you how important relationships are, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And so what happens when we're so busy trying to prove, you know, prove ourselves we begin to forget the goodness of God and how he's already proved uh, himself to us. And so that's the first lie. I think a second lie, and this is, this is certainly true of so many Americans, not only do I have to prove myself, but, but the second lie is this, I just don't have enough. I don't have enough. And it's this, it's this lie that basically says that, you know, um, you know, we're living with kind of a scarcity mentality. You know what I mean? Like, we just don't have enough. I, I need more money. I need more stuff. I need a better car. I need a better house. Then I'll be happy. And so what we do is we get on the, we get on the treadmill of work, right? So that we can earn a little bit more, to have a little bit more, so that, so that, you know, we can think we can be a little bit more. And it all flows out of this lie that says, I, I just don't have enough. If I could have a little bit more, you know, then I'd be happy. And Jesus warned us about this. I mean, he really did. He warned us about this in Luke 12, 15. You know, he, he, he says this. He said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, the reason why he's telling us to be on guard against covetousness is because he knows human nature. He knows that we are very vulnerable to the lie that does say that your life consists by the abundance of your possessions. He knows we're, we're very vulnerable to believing that. And what he's trying to do is to help us live in the truth that my life is not set by, you know, by the abundance of my bank account or what's in my house or what's in my garage or what's, you know, you know what's going on. It's interesting, there's a, there's a man by the name of Don McNay. He's written, a, he's written an interesting book, Life Lessons from the Lottery. And what he is, is he's a, he's a financial consultant to, to lottery winners. And he's written this book, and the whole book is really about the curse of winning the lottery. 
You know, and we often think, right, if I can just get that raise, if I can just get that promotion, if I can just win the lottery, then I can rest, right? Then I can be happy. And he says, nothing is further from the truth than that. He says, he says you'll be amazed how many people commit suicide after winning the lottery. How many people divorce after winning the lottery? How many people just burn through their money, you know, all of their money just within a couple of years of winning the lottery. What he says is winning the lottery is a curse. It causes tremendous upheaval in your life. Why? Because we buy into a lie that says my life consists in the abundance of my stuff. And then when it doesn't deliver, it leaves us broken, right? We don't even know where to turn. But there's a third lie that we buy into, and that is this. I'm not enough. I am not enough. And so we live in this mindset of, of just, you know, I don't measure up. I'm not, I don't measure up to the world's standards. Whatever the, you know, whatever the good life is, you know, defined by in the world, we look at our life and we judge ourselves and we make the assessment, I am not enough. And what it does is it leads to envy. We look at other people, we look at their life, we envy their life, we covet what they have in their life. We think if I just had that, then I would be happy. And it just flows out of this thought that, that I am not enough. My marriage is not enough. My job is not enough. My house is not enough. My kids, you know, we compare our kids, you know, to you know, the kids of the family that we're really close to and, you know, they're doing dance and so our kids need to do dance, right? And, and, so, and so they do travel soccer and so we need to do travel soccer. And so much of what we do, we do it just because everybody else is doing it. And so, and so you know, King Solomon understood the folly of this. This is crazy, he says. 3,000 years ago in Ecclesiastes 4.4, this is what he observed. He says, then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after a win. And what he's saying is this, we strive and strive and strive to gain and to get what our neighbor has, but it's vanity and it just doesn't last. And so that's where a lot of the restlessness comes from. You know, it's the sins, it's, it's the deceptions that we buy into that really fuel the sin in our life. And so I guess the question is, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of the lie? How do we get out of the restlessness of life? I think it's very simple. I think David is saying we need to go back to the shepherd. We need the shepherd. We need to go back to the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need in him. You see, when we look to the world, we start chasing the good life. When we, look, you know, when we look to God, he gives us the good life because the good life is in him. Now, you know, one of the things I share with you, and I, I share this a lot with you all because I, I really want you reading your Old Testament. Um, you know, most of us kind of gravitate towards the New Testament, uh, but I want you reading the Old Testament um, really because uh, it's, it's just so, I mean, it's, it's the word of God mainly, but but it's so rich. And, and the reason why it's rich is, is because the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. So every book in the Old Testament, some of them are exciting and drama-filled, you know. Some of the books of the Old Testament are, you know, a little bit dry. But all of the books of the Old Testament are there because they, they point us to Jesus. And so 
And so really when you look at Psalm 23, you want to ask the question, who is the shepherd that, the David, that David is talking about? Who is it? And I shared this with you last week. You know the answer, right? It's Jesus, right? And um, anytime you're asked a question in church, you just say Jesus, and you've got a 90% chance of that being right, right? Um, yeah, David, David is, when he says the Lord is my shepherd, he's, he's talking about, he's talking about, he's pointing to the shepherd Jesus. That's who he's pointing to. Now, he, did, he really, you know, he didn't know everything about the Messiah, but he knew the Messiah was coming. And so what he understood is that God relates as a shepherd. And what he's doing is he's really describing the Messiah. And so, and so even Jesus understood this because Jesus is talking to a group of, you know, religious leaders in John 10, 11, and, and he looks at them and he says to them, I am the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He understood completely what Psalm 23 said. He knew exactly what the, the message he was sending to the religious leaders is, I am God, I am the shepherd of Israel. So what we know from Psalm 23 is he is our shepherd. But there's an interesting passage in Hebrews 4. Jesus is not only our shepherd, but according to Hebrews 4, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Let me show you this. This is from the, from the book of Hebrews chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, you know, because, you know, Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. And, you know, God said, you, you will have rest in the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But that wasn't the ultimate rest God was pointing them to. So, so for, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. God promised them real rest, all right? So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, Jesus, the Son of God. So what, 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 we're, what we're seeing in Scripture is it points to Jesus not only being our shepherd, but Jesus being our Sabbath rest. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? So the question is, how does Jesus provide for us rest? Well, I'll tell you how he provides rest for us. He provides rest through his life and his death and his resurrection. The work of Jesus... On the cross, the work of Jesus long before he got to the cross accomplishes our spiritual rest. That is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That Jesus, Jesus lived. I mean, you know, we all, we, all, we all have this default kind of mode of thinking, if I can just be a good person, then God will accept me, right? I mean, we just kind of live that way. I just want to be a good person. When in reality... Jesus was the good person we were supposed to be. He was the perfect person. Because what he did is he fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments for us every single second of his life. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and then he went to the cross. He not only lived the life that we were supposed to live, but he died the sinner's death we were supposed to die. And so his work in that accomplishes our rest. I love how J.D. Greer says this. He says, this is, this is just, he just crushes it. He says this, without Christ, we will work even while we are resting. But with Christ, we will rest even while we're working. And what's he talking about there? He's talking about the internal rest that our shepherd gives us, the internal heart rest. So, so why is it that we can rest in the goodness of God. I think there are three reasons why we can rest in God's goodness today. And the first one is this, Jesus is our identity. 
That is why we can rest in him. Jesus is our identity. You know, as kind of I alluded to a little bit earlier, um, you know, we, we, often, we often are trying to justify ourselves. And uh, we're always trying to prove ourselves. We, we often will diminish our faults and exaggerate our virtues. Uh, we, will, we feel guilty and we feel insignificant and we feel unimportant. And so what we do is we try to, you know, we try to fill our life with personas. We, we try to fill our life with accomplishments. And we try to fill our life with achievements to, to, to really just demonstrate our worth. And so it's just, it's just this constant effort at self-justification. I don't know if you remember the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, but there's a, there's a scene in that movie where Harold Abrams, the, the Olympic sprinter, is trying to describe the pressure that he feels with the upcoming race uh, in the Olympics. And he, he, he says this, he says, you know, when that gun goes off, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. You know, when they fire that gun and the race is on, he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying his worth as a person totally depends on how he performs in that Olympic race, whether or not he wins the gold medal. And you know what? The, there's, a, there's a, a way in which we all say that kind of thing. We just use different examples. We use different ways. We say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a good mother. I'm a good father. I'm a good provider. You know, I'm a great student. I'm a great athlete. You know, I'm a good Christian, you know. Um, and so everybody's looking to find, you know, that they're justified by what they can do, that I have value, that I have significance. You know, in the first uh, Rocky movie, Rocky Balboa, you know, he makes this comment. He says, he says, you know, when that final ring, when that final bell rings and I'm still standing, he says, then I'll know that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood that I'm somebody. And I wonder, in what way are you trying to do that in your own life? And we all do it in various ways. But what Rocky was trying to do is, he was just trying to fight and prove his value, to take a stand that he is something significant. But you know, the gospel speaks something different, doesn't it? You know, the language of the gospel is acceptance and love. That the highest being holds you in the highest regard. And you didn't deserve that. And neither do I. But that's how you're regarded. That, that the gospel speaks of God's unconditional love for you. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on how well you've done this week or how well you performed or, you know, how, you know, how, you know, whatever it is you've accomplished. It's, it's really based on on Jesus' love for you and his, you know, your value is based on his love for you. You know, I did, a, I did a Bible search on just the phrase, in Christ. Because if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. And it's 91 times in the New Testament alone where this phrase occurs. Do you know what in Christ means? It means we're united in Christ. We're united in him. It means we've been born into him. In Christ means we've been transferred into him. We've been delivered into him. We've been, uh, 
you know, we've been rescued into him. There's so many different facets of this. In other words, what it means is our identity is in him. It's not in what I do. It's not in what you do. That our worth and value comes from being in him. That we have been bought with a price and that we belong to him. And what that means is we can receive the gospel as Christians by stop trying to prove ourselves to everyone else. That we can rest in his love for us. We can rest in the fact that in his eyes we have ultimate value to him. How do you know how, do you know how valuable something is? How do you know how, how valuable something is? Well, you know, value is established by what somebody's willing to pay for that, whatever it is. Diamond ring, a car, you know, a beach house, whatever it is. Do you know how much, you know how valuable you are? God the Father gave up his own son to purchase you. That's how valuable you are. And so it seems to me that our value is set and unchanging and you can rest in his identity. But not only that, we can rest because Jesus is our priority. Jesus is our priority. You know, one of the interesting things that I notice as a pastor is just how many people don't even know where they're going in life. Have you ever like run into somebody like that? I mean, they have no idea what kind of what their purpose is in life. They have no idea what's next, what's where they're going. They they just kind of wander around aimlessly. Um, they, they wonder which way they should be going. They just kind of drift through life with no GPS. And what they do is sometimes it's manifested in, different, you know, in a different way. Like, for example, um, they come to a fork in the road in their life. they got to make a decision, and they just agonize over this big decision. And, and, and so they just, they just, they're restless about it. They're, they agonize over it. They're, they're, they're in fear about it. They're anxious about it. You know why? Because they have no real compass in their life. They have no real direction. So, so they agonize over every single decision that we have. And so if Jesus is your priority, church, then you already have the compass. If he's your Lord and Savior, if he's your priority, you know that your purpose life, the reason why you're born is to bring glory and honor to him. That's why, you're, that's why you live. To bring glory and honor to God, whatever it is that you do, whether you're a student or an athlete or a stay-at-home mom or, you know, you know CEO of whatever, your, your purpose, your priority is simply to get up and bring glory and honor to God. And you can rest in that. And the reason why is because of Matthew 6.33 where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things will be added unto you. You don't need to worry about these other things. As long as Jesus is your priority, you can rest that your shepherd will provide what you need. There was a really interesting blog on uh, NPR where they, uh, they were talking about the bar-tailed gotwit. You ever heard of the bar-tailed gotwit? Uh, it's a bird, and uh, I've got a little picture here for you. This, this bird is an amazing bird. You know what this bird does? Uh, it lives in northern Alaska, and every fall, about this time of year, the bar-tailed gotwit will fly 7,000 miles to New Zealand. 7,000 miles. Now, the interesting thing about the gotwit bird here is um, they'll, they'll fly over the Pacific Ocean. They don't, they don't fish. So they're not going to, you know, take a pit stop, you know, and dive down and grab something out of the water. They're not going to sit on the, on the surface of the water 
on their way down, uh, they're going to do the whole trip without, start, without stopping. And there's something within them that leads them to New Zealand. In fact, they were tracking um, some of the birds with transmitters. There was a female, uh, Gotwit, and she was, she was named affectionately E7. And, uh, and uh, because of the, that was what was on the barcode transmitter, this, this female Gotwit bird flew 7,369 miles in eight days without stopping. Without stopping once. And so it has this homing signal within it. It's just instinctually, they know exactly where to go. Even the young ones for the first time, they know exactly where to go. They know exactly where New Zealand is. Um, and they fly right to it in the course of just over a week. And here's, what I'm, here's, here's the parallel that I was wanting to make with this. And it's this, that you know what? As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And, you, and the Holy Spirit of God, your counselor, is going to lead you home. You have a compass called the Holy Spirit. And we need to just make him, make him our Lord and follow him. Lastly, Jesus is not only our identity and our priority, but he is our security. He is our security. I, I think we worry and we hurry and we scurry because we're just trying to be in control. And I only speak from experience, so... Um, this is not anything unusual, but it's one of the hardest lessons for us to learn, isn't it? God is God and we're not. And we can rest in the providence of God. The providence of God says that God is directing and guiding our entire life and he will bring us home to his destination. And he will do it. And so we don't need to try to control everything God, our Savior, our Shepherd is in control. We can trust him to engineer our life, to protect us, to guide us, to lead us, to, to build the house, so to speak. That's the gospel. God does it for us. We can rest in him. Let me show you, let me show you Psalm 127, the first two verses. Uh, the psalmist writes this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, who labor, those who build it labor in vain. It's God that does the work. That's what he's saying. Notice what he says this. Notice how he says this. Unless the Lord watches over the city. So he's talking about protection. The watchman stays awake in vain. You can stay up all night long. You can worry. You can be anxious about your future. You can be anxious about every single area. But it's in vain unless God's watching out over you. And so it's in vain that you rise up early and go, to late, you know, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Listen to what he says. For he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. So when you go to bed at night, what you're saying to your shepherd is, God, I'm trusting you. I've got so much to do. I need to rest and I'm going to let you work while I'm sleeping. I'm going to let you protect and watch over us while I'm sleeping. That's what he's saying. And so he gives us his beloved sleep. All right, so how do we, how do we rest? How do we do this? So that's, uh, let, me just give you, let me just give you some practical thoughts on this, resting in the goodness of God. I, I think that really the first thing is, if this is an area where you really struggle, I think you just need to confess your idolatry. You just need to confess it. If, if, you, if you don't stop and rest and relax, you need to identify which idol is underneath that. And then just confess it to God. And what I've noticed is 
is as I've confessed the idols in my heart, you know, John Calvin says our, the human heart is an idol-making factory. I mean, we all have them. When I confess it, the idol loses power over me. When I bring the idol out of the darkness and into the lights, I confess it to a brother. You know, I, can, you know, I confess it to God. It loses power in my life. So, so it could be that you're trying to prove yourself. It could be that you, you feel like you're, you always need more or you're not enough or whatever. Confess that to God and turn away from that. It's just a lie. I think the second thing would be this, to commit to a Sabbath day. Commit to a Sabbath day. You know, the word Sabbath means a day of rest. And uh, what we know from Scripture is God created the Sabbath not for God, but for us. He did it for us because he loves us. Even God took a Sabbath day's rest in the seven days of, of creation. And so, and so the Sabbath is so important, it made the top ten list. Did you know that? The Ten Commandments, it really did. So you're like, well, what do I do on my Sabbath? Well, it's simple. Just uh, rest your body. Rest your body. Your body needs to rest. And uh, you just get some rest. Get, take a nap. Sleep in. Whatever you need to do, rest your body. I think the second thing you do on your Sabbath is recharge your emotions. Right? You know, we're all different. We all have different personalities. Um, and so what recharges you may not recharge me. That's okay. Um, you know, solitude may be the thing that recharges you. Uh, it might be that you need to be around people to be recharged. Um, it may be that you need to be out in nature or you need to, you know, give yourself to a hobby. There are different things that recharge our emotions. Whatever, you, whatever it is, just do that. Do that. And then third, you need to refocus your spirit. And this is called worship. And we all worship. And the question is, who or what are you going to worship? You can't, you can't be worship neutral. Our hearts were made, our spirits were made to worship. And so whatever you do on your Sabbath, there needs to be worship. You know, maybe extended prayer, a prayer walk, you know, uh, reading, you know, spending a little time extra in Scripture. Whatever it is. Uh, but, but refocus your spirit. And then the last thing I would say is this. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. I, I think we often, we often think the gospel is for non-Christians. Like non-Christians need good news. You know what? I need good news every day. And I need to remind myself that Jesus is my identity. He's my priority. And he's my security. And that's really good news. That's really good news. What I find is this, you know, when I go to bed at night, I know who I am. I'm pretty confident. I know who I am. But man, when I wake up in the morning, I have completely forgotten. And so what I need is I need to come back to God's good news, that he loves me, that I am in Christ. Does that make sense? Everybody get it? Let's pray together. Lord, I, I thank you for uh, your love and care for us that you, you make us lie down in green pastures and you lead us beside still waters. You restore our soul. I thank you that there's no better picture of the goodness of God than that, that you, that you love us in that way. And I just thank you that we can rest outwardly and externally and we can rest spiritually and internally. Lord, we, 
we're immersed in a culture where we're just told that we always have to do, do, and do a little bit more. And I just pray that you would help us just to be, to be in your presence, to be fully present in every moment, to be with the people that we love, to slow down. God, will you just help us do that? Will you open our eyes to those areas? And Lord, I just confess that I'm often blind to my own need to do this. And I just know that there might be others here as well. God, help us through your spirit just to receive your love and your goodness. God, we, we need you every, every day. We need you every minute of the day. Our, our joy is found in you. Our rest is found in you. And so I thank you, just like J.D. Greer said, God, even while we're working, we can be at rest. So God, may that be true of us. And we thank you and we praise you and all of God's people said.